Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're coming back to the ancients, coming back to the Neoplatonists, and we're talking about Iamblichus. Iamblichus was a student of Porphyry, who in turn was a student of Plotinus. Porphyry played the uh, major role in editing Plotinus's works. So Iamblichus is a couple generations down the line here, uh, and we're going to run over some of what Iamblichus does with Plotinus's work, how he kind of changes while, while keeping the same. Uh, lots of elements of, of what Plotinus had to say. And we'll also talk about some of the political implications of Iamblichus's work because there are some serious political consequences to what Iamblichus does. So, uh, but before we get into all that, I want to ask Alex, so you're looking at Iamblichus, uh, what stood out to you? Uh, what stands out to a lot of people, which is divination and sacrifice and what's called theurgy. Um, it, it does play a huge political role, all this ritual. I looked at the book of Ezra in the Bible today, and as the Jews were expelling all their foreign wives that had you know, corrupted the, the Jewish body, they, I think all the insights that were listed in that book were accompanied by these huge sacrifices. So in terms of Iamblichus, um, I guess we could start with when he talks about the exhalations of like sacrificial victims and how this somehow attracts the diamonds or, or the gods. or Because he's writing in response to another Neoplatonist, uh, Porphyry, I think, who basically he called him out on a lot of things, but mainly how do these sacrifices attract the gods when the gods are so much higher than the world of matter and all that? And isn't it a bit, you know, hypocritical for people who purify themselves from contact with other bodies and from consuming food, then go and kill these animals and commit these debauched kind of sexual rituals? So Iamblichus is answering a lot of that. And I'm not too convinced when he says that the exhalation somehow you know, encourage the diamonds to come towards you and be nourished because it's in their nature to need that. And the Demiurge created a world where, you know, it's scarce and things can't sustain themselves. Yeah, I, a lot of especially Enlightenment thinkers who look at Iamblichus see a kind of retreat from the wonderful philosophy of Plato and Aristotle into a defense of all sorts of arcane and debauched and, and awful pagan religious practices. And for that reason, Iamblichus is often positioned as someone who uh, deflects Platonism down a path that ends in total uh, alignment of, of Platonism with all of the things about paganism which deists and Christians find uh, repulsive. But Iamblichus is definitely a philosophical figure. He has a lot of things to say about philosophy, and there is a philosophical account of why theurgy is necessary. Uh, and the main move that he makes that results in, in moving to theurgy 
is he rejects Plotinus's claim that a part of the soul is undescended. So if you remember our episode about Plotinus, I said one of the things that's really interesting about Plotinus is that he says that everyone has a part of their soul that resides in the realm of the intelligibles. And if everyone has a part of the soul that resides there, then everyone has some at least latent potential to access the realm of the intelligibles or to participate in the realm of the intelligibles. Yamlicus says that this is not the case. He rejects the idea of the undescended soul. He instead argues that the soul is constantly caught up in further pluralities. So because the soul is constantly caught up in the senses and is constantly interacting with external objects and with lots of different external objects, it is constantly focused on things that are even more plural than itself, on images, and therefore, uh, if the soul is doing that, that implies that the soul's essence itself is also more plural than Plotinus lets on. And so that means that the soul lacks the unity that would be necessary for part of it to reside at the intelligible level. There are also some, some further implications in some of the rest of Yamlicus's cosmology that result in this position. And so I kind of want to run through some of the elements of this. And after I kind of run through it in brief, we can maybe try to get into some of the bits in, in greater detail. But uh, one of the things that sticks out here is that the one for Iamblichus has both apophatic and cataphatic aspects. So the, in, in an apophatic sense, the one is unspeakable. This is the sense in which the one cannot be accessed, cannot be understood, cannot be cognized, cannot be defined right? And yet the one also is cataphatic in the sense that it interacts with the lower levels of reality, it gives rise to the lower levels of reality, it creates, it generates. So it's doing all of these things, and therefore it can be known through what it does, but it is also in another sense totally unknowable and totally unspeakable. And this apophatic and cataphatic aspect exists at the same time. So the one is both totally unspeakable and fully knowable through its creation, right? Uh, Underneath the one is the principle of limit and unlimited, which Iamblichus derives from the Pythagoreans. So everything that is below the principle of limited and unlimited contains these principles. Limit is the idea that everything is determined, and therefore everything is, is cataphatic, is knowable, Unlimited is the idea that everything is indeterminate, and in that sense, unknowable, infinite. So what is limited can be known, and what is unlimited cannot be known, and yet everything that sits below the principles of limit and unlimited contains both of those principles. So everything can be known and cannot be known. Underneath limit and unlimited, you have the realm of the intelligibles, and this includes the gods, who are themselves unities, but because there are multiple gods, you have a plurality of unities, so you have a greater level of plurality than you have at the level of the one, because there are multiple gods, multiple unities. And sometimes these unities are referred to as henads, and later Neoplatonists will often make reference to henads. There's a debate in the literature about the degree to which the idea of henads is already in Iamblichus. Beneath these intelligible gods, there are the intellective gods. Unlike Plotinus, 
Yamlicus distinguishes between intelligibles and intellectives. And the intellective gods are below the intelligible gods. The intellective gods perform the functions of the demiurge. They make things, they make people, they make the physical world, right? And they make it based on the ideas of the intelligible gods. So this also contradicts Plotinus. Plotinus, you might remember from our episode on Plotinus, he argues that the intelligibles and the demiurge must operate at the same level so that the intelligibles can be fully accessed by the demiurge. Right, but if the demiurge is an intellective god, then the intelligibles exist uh, at a at a higher level and are cognized by higher gods. So Plato's demiurge is identified by Iamblichus as Zeus. Zeus comes up with the laws of the physical universe, and then the other crafting gods are derived from Zeus, and they create within the limits of Zeus's laws, right? So Zeus's laws are based on Zeus's understanding of the realm of the intelligibles and of the gods that exist above Zeus in that realm. Then Zeus, as an intellective crafting god, comes up with the laws of the universe, and then the other gods create in accordance with those laws. They make a variety of things, they make not just human souls, but they make archangels, angels, demons, heroes, archons. Iamblichus tries to integrate the Chaldean oracles into Platonism, and therefore he has to integrate many of the spiritual entities that they posit. Right? Now, more similar to Plotinus, uh, nature and matter are limiting in some way on the ability of the gods to bring the good into physical being. Uh, similar to the receptacle in the Timaeus, the limits of nature and matter constrain the gods. Evil stems from the inability to fully align matter with divine intention. Now, this sometimes results in readings of Iamblichus, which position him as a dualist. But since for Iamblichus, everything must ultimately emanate from the one, that means Matter also must emanate from the one, and therefore matter cannot be intrinsically evil. It is likely that evil stems from the inability of the intellective gods to fully understand the intelligibles. That gap between the intellective and intelligible gods creates more uh, of a straightforward explanation for evil and for mistakes because it's not just one demiurge and a set of intelligibles, it's different sets of gods in different, different and separate genera, right? So there are a couple implications for this. For one, there's a whole level of divinity between human souls and the realm of the intelligibles. This intellective level is a whole level of divinity, and it includes very prominent divinities like Zeus, okay? And that sits in between human beings in the realm of the intelligibles. So the intelligibles is much further removed from the human soul than in Plotinus's account. Next, you know, since everything beneath limit and unlimited is in some way unlimited, and the intelligibles are beneath limit and unlimited, the intelligibles cannot be totally nailed down intellectually by human beings. They contain the principle of unlimited, right? 
So all of that combines with also this point he makes about the sensory and how the sensory illustrates the soul's um, lack of unity and lack of ability to be settled and constant oscillation between changing and not changing uh, to culminate in the rejection of the undescended soul. And so once you've rejected the undescended soul, then you need theurgy. And these are acts, since the soul is constantly sensory, since it's constantly focused on the world and grabbing things and interacting with things, the only way that the soul is going to get any access to the intelligibles is through action, is through interacting with matter, because that's what the soul is fundamentally oriented toward for Iamblichus. So the soul needs divine aid. It, the uh, theurgical rites, they're not magic. They're not black magic. They're not means by which the uh, human souls can command the deity or, or command the gods. On the contrary, they are invitations for the gods to show their grace. It is only the gods' grace which allows human beings to access the realm of the intelligibles. So the, the right is a way of inviting the deity to bestow this grace. And the way that this happens is through uh, signs, uh, symbols. Those can be items, they can be myths, they can be revelations. Different deities are associated with different symbols. And, of course, deities in other parts of the ancient world, not just, say, Greece, are associated with their own sets of symbols. Egyptian deities have their own symbols, Phoenician deities have their own symbols, and so on. So since different symbols are associated with different deities, all of those deities are recognizable on this view. It's not just a Greek Hellenistic view. It incorporates all of the other deities of antiquity, all of the other deities of the different parts of the Roman Empire. Now, that dramatically increases the political potential of this kind of view. If there is a role for gods from every part of the Roman world in this view, then this can be a view that can be spread to every corner of the Roman Empire and introduced to people in every, every cult, not just, say, those who believe in the Greek gods, not just, say, those who uh, are living in Syria, the province where Iamblichus spends much of his time. Uh, but all over the empire. Is there a text by, I'm cutting you off, maybe Emperor Julian, who supported Iamblichus? I've seen a letter where he praised him, and Julian had this pagan revival. It was called Julian the Apostate. Uh, yes. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Roman Emperor Julian is a huge admirer of Iamblichus and wrote all kinds of wonderful things about Iamblichus because he was taught by Maximus of Ephesus who himself is one of Iamblichus's students. So Julian's understanding of paganism is heavily, heavily influenced by Iamblichus. And so Julian, of course, thinks that it should be possible to create a pagan church which spans the whole empire based on Iamblichus. This reorganization of pagan religion aligned with Platonism and therefore aligned with philosophy, uh, that's Julian's big project for reviving paganism and saving the empire from Christianity. Now, uh, he, as part of this, he wants to create an order of high priests. So one of the things that Iamblichus says is that there are, uh, while you need theurgy to access the realm of the intelligibles, 
the people who are best placed to design and orchestrate the rites are the philosophers and theologians who are best placed to understand what it is that is likely to succeed in inviting the gods, likely to succeed in uh, earning their grace. So these philosophers and theologians are meant to be the high priests of the pagan faith, and they are supposed to design and orchestrate the theurgical rites. So Julian, following Iamblichus, creates this group of high priests that are supposed to organize and run this pagan church and to perform the rites, organize the rites, decide which rites should be carried out, where and how, and so on. But Julian, of course, reigns for less than two years. He dies on campaign in Persia. And after he dies, this whole project is, uh, is, is shelved. Uh, you get a period of, of conciliatory emperors who are trying to avoid wading too much into religious questions. And those emperors avoid pushing too hard either Christianity or paganism as a way of trying to tone things down. Does that answer your question about Julian? Yeah. Uh, also, do you happen to know the sources exactly, or maybe some texts where you can hear what he said? Oh, well, yeah, Julian does have his own writings. Okay. Yeah, Julian writes some of his own, his own work. Uh, what are the names of Julian's texts? That's a good question. Let me, uh, let me dig up some of, some of the source material on, on Julian. Tell you what, I will dig up the source material for, the Ju- for Julian and put that in the show notes for people interested in reading directly Julian's own thoughts about this stuff. Uh, nice. I, I will do that subsequently. But yes, Julian oh. does, write, does write about this. Hmm. I want to pick up on what you said about the philosopher priests and some of the safeguards against abuse there, but also start with uh, action. You know, the fact that this... Any spiritual reasoning can't just be intellective, as we keep saying. It's quite funny on a theory podcast to say this, but it has to be practical. But what about in Plato? Because the, the action there was mainly dialectic, this back and forth, but also uh, dream work, I think, in book six or nine of the Republic. And that doesn't seem to get much mention. Well, there's so, a place for me. the imagination in Iamblichus. The imagination for him indicates in part how the soul is so sensory in its focus, because when the soul is trying to do more creative work, it does it through imagining a plurality of sensibles. Yeah. And then does it lose a little bit of itself in the process? As in, it corrupts itself or not? Because it goes out into that. Sensory. So the, the degree to which matter is, is intrinsically evil is debated in uh, studies of the Amblichus. I would not want to co-sign a view that says that matter is straightforwardly evil. I don't think any of the Platonists affirm that. They all tend to distance themselves from Gnostics who straightforwardly affirm that matter is evil. But there does seem to be a tendency for matter to constrain the ability of the things that are material to access the higher strata. And evil stems from this inability to access or to fully uh, incorporate these things from the higher strata. One of the interesting points that Iamblichus makes is that the one is uh, evident in everything that comes out of the one, but the further things that are caused by the lower layers, those further things do not uh, 
implicate the one. So the one gives rise to everything beneath it, but the things that are beneath it, the further decisions and acts that those things take uh, are not the one's responsibility, and they potentially uh, deviate through their own acts. So the one is life imbuing and is creating uh, all of this, is giving rise to all of this, but it also transcends the particular things that any of the entities at the lower levels do. So in this way, the one is ultimately responsible for everything, but also not responsible for the particular further effects of the things that it gives rise to. But how come there's this axiom? It's called the receptivity axiom, I think. So whatever cause there is in anything, it carries through to the effect. And if there's imperfection in the effect, that must mean that there's something in the cause. That's like an axiom that's through the whole philosophy. I'm not sure why, but... Yes, yes. So, for instance, this is how we get the idea that the soul, uh, because the soul is constantly acting in the sensory realm, that indicates that the soul itself has this uh, sensory focus, right? Yet, at the same time, when, say, uh, an intelligible God or an intellective God creates something, when it creates something, the thing that it creates uh, is not directly created by the one. And so the ways in which the things that are created are imperfect, the one is not to be held responsible for those imperfections. Yeah, because when he gets into the Pythagorean stuff and the monads, dyads, and triads, you only get into the realm of matter once you're in the triad, because I think you can't have any 3D or materiality without triangles or. Ah, I'm not. I'm not sure. But yeah, the one yeah. the one cannot be known in part because it is only known through the things that it gives rise oh. to, and many of those things give rise to further things. Since we don't have a foot in the realm of the intelligibles, we do not really have direct access to the things which are more directly coming out of the one. Uh, we are below the intellective level, so we have very limited ability to really get at the one in itself. And insofar as we do know the one through the things that come out of the one, we know things that are multiple levels removed from the one. So while we can know the one through the one's works, because the works that we actually encounter are so many layers descended, the works that we are encountering are not necessarily going to really give us the full picture. And that's why the one remains totally unknowable in addition to being totally knowable. It is both uh, apophatic and cataphatic. You know that that apophatic, cataphatic distinction sounds like two things. One, it sounds like a creator God versus a deistic God. So this idea that God has to be transcendent above things, out of things, but also imminent, intimately mixed in with things. Uh, where that's in iamblichus and a christian version but in a deus they'd say oh no it's uh transcendent but not imminent so uh yeah i don't know if you make anything of that but yeah you know when we were doing the timaeus and we were talking about the good versus say the demiurge you know for plato the demiurge does all this creating and making right uh and the good is much more apophatic so we have all of this creation being associated with the Demiurge and the Timaeus. And we don't have this multiple layering, right? And that's why, for instance, for Plotinus, it's easier to read 
human souls as being involved in uh, the realm of the intelligibles. Because if you're just looking at at the Timaeus and you're just looking at Plato, it's not obvious that Iamblichus is reading with the multiple layers is the only possible reading. And a lot of the earlier readings of Plato don't have that, that multiplicity of layers. This is significant, one, because it leads Plotinus to have the undescended soul argument. But also, in Plato, it has interesting implications. So if we go all the way back to the Timaeus, we did a Timaeus episode when Alex first came on, right? If we go all the way back to the Timaeus, part of what is interesting about that is that creation itself is to some degree removed from the good. And so the cataphatic aspect, the making aspect, is very much kicked down the chain. Uh, and the good is, is not about being. And insofar as the demiurge is about bringing things into being, this is a kind of uh, you know, being caught up with, with the material. And so the demiurge's imperfection in part stems from the fact that that demiurge wants to materially create things that cannot possibly, because of the limitations of the receptacle, fully embody the good. So the demiurge, because the demiurge is driven to materially realize the good, is doomed in some way to failure because material, the receptacle, does not permit that. Right? So the apophatic aspect to the good, the, the total uh, unknowable, uh, the fact that it cannot be known from any particular perspective because the good is the unity of all perspectives, you know, that, I think, is more heavily emphasized in the original Plato. But as we move along here, the cataphatic aspects of the story seem to become more important to a lot of theologians because a lot of theologians become increasingly focused on the creation of being and God as the creator. Now, in Iamblichus's account, we have both aspects in play together, discussed together. In a lot of Buddhist accounts, you have almost no cataphatic discussion at all. In fact, the, the gods in Buddhism that do the creating are portrayed as being, you know, in many ways, uh, very, very mistaken and not as wise as the Buddha himself because they would bring things into being and therefore would create suffering, which is intrinsic to being brought into being, right? So I think certain earlier accounts of Platonism are more similar in this respect to Buddhism in that they are more apophatic and more focused on the fact that being itself is distortive, right? Now here, we do have an emphasis on the soul being unable to reach the realm of the intelligibles. And so there is, in some ways, in Iamblichus, an emphasis on being being in inherently distortive. But because uh, he identifies us so much with our material being, there's also much less potential for us to get out of the material realm in Iamblichus. And so therefore, Iamblichus's prescriptive political and normative theory is much more focused on action in the material realm, even though paradoxically, I think Iamblichus is even more hostile to the material realm uh, and, and even more critical of it than Plato or, or Plotinus. Yeah, I think intellect is actually above soul, right? But soul is the means that you get to the divine. Because intellect is like soul that's been lit up by grace or the essences or the gods are intellectible. But yeah, nonetheless, the root to that divine is 
And yeah, it's also external. There are also mortal souls and then divine souls. And of course, when we're talking about divine souls, that's a little bit of a different kind of soul existing in a different plane. And so sometimes there are questions about whether the things that are said about intellect, uh, the, the God's souls can in any way be applied to particular higher level human beings, or if there are some human beings that might be uh, occupying a, a higher level of spiritual plane, the fact that he's posited things like angels and archangels and demons and archons and so on allows people to imagine that there might be a tier of higher souls that the philosophers might have, but this is not totally clear. And so I don't want to say that it's uh, definitively part of or not part of the doctrine. I think it would be more like the philosophers can maybe communicate with them, but not become them, because maybe that would imply that the philosopher's mind is up there with the higher deities when they are separate entities. At least that's how they're written. Yeah, there are some interpreters who have wanted to, to very much resist any line of argument which would get any human being into the space where they can... Uh, be in any way undescended. But there are occasionally interpreters who want to suggest that there might be some section of of extremely heroic beings, since, of course, heroes are part of what's generated. Uh, Heroes might in some way, uh, and certain philosophers might be kind of heroic in character and might exist in that kind of, that set of stuff in between the human souls and the the intellective deities. That, that set of stuff could potentially include some people that might, we might meet. Uh, but again, I'm not, I'm not sure which way to read that. I'm not entirely convinced by either interpretation at this time. So I would just throw up that those are a couple of possible ways of reading that. Mm. But it, it's a bit like in other traditions, if you find maybe a, a master who's just so completely removed any attachment, like maybe even lost the the life instinct. So if someone's threatening them, they wouldn't try and fight for life. That's such a different kind of being almost. You might not even call it death to them because it's not. It's like the the basis of the body in a quite a an unvital, you can just call it aggregates. The aggregates break apart when they die. It's not like their body dies. There's no identity or self that dies. And also in the terms of normative politics, how you should act. Um, Iamblichus seems to say that people become like gods through external action and getting close to your daimon, your demon, your spirit guide, which is like your impulse, your fate, your destiny, which is unique, involves not just the heroic elevation up to the divine, but as you said, because the soul is so caught up in matter, it's about coming down and uh, doing good works. Yeah. Well, not even coming down because there's nothing to come down from since there is no undescended part. There is nothing really to descend. So maybe uh, getting caught up in, yeah. Yeah, uh, certainly philosophy is not enough for uh, for Iamblichus. You're going to have to do more than just philosophy. Philosophy is important. Philosophy informs the theurgy. Philosophy uh, and theology help you determine what form the theurgy should take, helps you lead other people into the right kinds of theur- uh, theurgical rituals, but it's not enough by itself. Uh, the Fate, in particular, is, is heavily identified with matter on this account. It's the material world that is the world of, of fate. And, of course, fate is both determinate and, and indeterminate in the sense that you don't know what your fate is. <laughs> right? You, you have a fate, but you don't know it. But you're aware of certain things that, or, or talents that, you know, each individual has a certain talent, which they must pursue. Right. And if uh, they're by... To- 
part of how you discover what it is that you might be meant to do is through engagement in theurgy and these divine signs, which show you what it is that you should be doing. Um, but of course, to get those divine signs, you need the grace of, of the gods. They have to be willing to give them to you. And so, of course, the oracles which prophesy all of that depends upon there being some possibility of performing some kind of rite which gives the person who is the oracle access to the divine so that that can then be shared in some way with those who visit. And when the oracle is acting like the divine, they're more like a demiurge because they're not acting for the self-interest. Like that's sorcery, not theurgy. Theurgy would be for the creating for, yeah, correct motivation, I guess so. Oh. Yeah, it's it's not magic, it's not sorcery, because the aim is to align the participants with the good. So to get access to the realm of the intelligibles, to get closer to the one, to approach it. So if you're trying to uh, participate in the realm of the intelligibles, certainly what you're doing cannot be some kind of self-interested right that's about uh, you know, getting things for yourself. So a lot of people, when they think about prayer or ritual, they think about a, a lot of uh, more contemporary instances of this or much more ancient instances of this where there's some kind of transaction being made. You give the gods something and they give you something in return, something material or corporeal. Uh, but what you're supposed to get here is signs about what it would be good for you to do, signs about what would be good to have happen, uh, things that cause you to have insight into what is good. Uh, and which enable you to be a better person. Th these are not rights that are about gaining things for yourself in the world. They're not about, uh, you, know, you know, forcing things to happen or commanding the gods to grant you wishes. It's, uh, you know, a lot of contemporary, uh, extremely cataphatic religious practices involve, you know, asking God to do things or praying or uh, to God to, to do you a favor. That's not how this works. This is about creating a situation in which it becomes possible for these signs to be uh, both to, to come into existence and for us to see them and to spot them as signs. So to, to give you an example of something that is a little bit like theurgy, when I was in high school, we had this uh, uh, thing that, that we did. It was called Natural Helpers. A chunk of the students were voted by their peers to be uh, especially helpful. You would list, you know, five people in the school that you would go to if you had a problem. And the chunk of students who got the most votes were taken on a weekend retreat to a campsite in the woods where they were uh, sworn to secrecy. It was a mystery, a mystery thing that we did. We were not told what it would be before we came and we could not tell anyone after we left. And then a series of events would take place where we would have a, you know, a series of, uh, you know, we would have conversations and interactions and so on, but they would occur in a, in a sensory environment that was very deliberately arranged to put us in a particular mental state, a certain kind of receptivity to what we were hearing from other people. And that was meant to teach us things about uh, how to empathize with our peers and to better understand them and to better help them. That was the goal of it. And of course, without getting into the specific details of what happened, because it is a mysterious right that you're not supposed to know about. Uh, you know, this is what is intended with theurgy. It's something that is meant to 
make you a better person in some way, help you find a path or find your, your path in life, right? It gives you more uh, understanding of the good, reveals it to you in some way so that you can live better. So when people read about the theurgy and they think about you know, pagan sacrifice or they think about um, you know, uh, th- these kinds of transactional black magic, that's not what this is really about. Now, there may be some kind of role for sacrifice in this, but if there is a role for sacrifice, the role for sacrifice is in creating the kind of environment in which you can have these insights. It's not about, you know, we sacrifice these animals and in exchange, the gods give us a bountiful harvest. It's not a deal or some kind of, of forcing or commanding of the gods to do anything. Because then the, the seer would be a doer as well. And the whole idea is that the seer is supposed to be taken over by the, the demon and that the crowd can tell when they're faking it as well. And this right. is not correct divination. Mm. And you see a lot of, of kind of appropriations of theurgy by certain branches of extremely cataphatic evangelical Christianity in which, say, you know, the megachurch preacher will claim to be a faith healer and will claim to be able to uh, you know, get God to work through him and then he can touch you or blow on you and yeah. and you'll be healed. You know, this is a kind of, you know, very much focused on getting God to do things for you, uh, doing, doing things discreetly with the divine. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, even that which doesn't involve any human sacrifice or animal sacrifice and is pitched in a totally Christian way, that is... Uh, you know, has all of the problems which a kind of pagan rite would have if it's transactional or if it's about getting God to do something. Uh, the idea here is that the divine will give you these insights, these moments of illumination through this sensory environment, which makes uh, you or especially the higher priests who are perhaps more receptive than you are able to to access these insights and to potentially share them with others who are around and who are maybe not so receptive that they can receive it directly, but receptive enough that they might be able to benefit from hearing from the person who has been kind of taken over by the divine. Hmm. Prophecy does seem kind of pop. Sorry. Well, go ahead. Just kind of populist, I guess, or popular. Uh, yeah. Even, even the Vatican, I was looking at Wikipedia, apparently the Vaticanus Collis, the hill, uh, this guy called Varro in one BC wrote about, uh, the etymology, it comes from wailing or the principle of human speech of voice. And Augustine didn't, St. Augustine didn't mention that uh, explanation, but he mentioned the deity, you know, the Deus Vaticanus or similar to that. Um, yeah. And, and this, this idea that the divining serpent you see in the inside of the Vatican, the auditorium looks like a serpent. This is not some kind of Illuminati thing like I first thought, but yeah, just prophecy, maybe a, a hint to that, perhaps. Yeah, you do have high priests, so it's not completely heterarchical, but there is a populism in it in that it tries to appeal to the ways in which ordinary people engage with the spiritual, the way in which ordinary people engage with the divine, uh, and trying to I- make those engagements better and and uh, more more able to result in the communication of the intelligibles to more people. Whereas, say, Plotinus's way of doing it, uh, if it's possible for anybody to do straight philosophy and to access the divine that way, you know, 
it's probably not possible for very many people. Plotinus can suggest that we all have a part of our soul in the realm of the intelligibles. But in practice, in the actually existing Roman Empire, most people are not doing philosophy. But a lot of people are engaged in various kinds of rituals. And so Iamblichus is trying to connect with that more regular, more everyday experience. Of course, the price of that move is the cutting off of human souls from the realm of the intelligible so that it can only be accessed in this ritualistic way. And so the philosophers, what the philosopher is doing is important on Iamblichus' theory because it's necessary to structure the theurgy. But it's also been devalued because it is not a direct route in and of itself here to the realm of the intelligibles. So the philosopher is both valued and devalued in this move. And the way for the philosopher to retain importance is in part to pivot more toward theology. Or not even theology, but theurgy, because I guess theology... Well, theology is structures the theurgy. So the philosopher pivots toward theology in the service of the theurgy, because for... Uh, Iamblichus, when he does his hierarchy of the virtues, he puts the theurgical virtues ahead of the contemplative virtues. So the contemplative virtues must serve us ultimately the theurgy. The philosopher who is truly virtuous will put his contemplation at the service of religious ritual. And what about paradigmatic virtue, which is above contemplation in different Neoplatonists? What yes. Does that mean? So paradigmatic virtue sits in between contemplative and theurgical virtue. So. Uh, Paradigmatic virtue is uh, more to do with uh, the whole paradigm. So contemplation is is partial because contemplation can't get you direct access on this view to the whole uh, paradigmatic is is the whole paradigm. It's it's more all inclusive than contemplative virtue, but not. practical in the way that theurgical virtue is. So you start with practical virtues for Iamblichus, you get up into the contemplative and paradigmatic space, but then you have to pivot to theurgical, because if you don't pivot to theurgical, you're not accessing the soul at the level at which the soul actually uh, is interested, ultimately. And so you, you might think of it this way. A lot of contemporary moral philosophers have all sorts of ideas about what's good and bad, right? But one of the things that people often notice about contemporary moral philosophers is that it doesn't cause them to have dramatically different lifestyles from ordinary people. They still, in in most of their day-to-day lives, live like regular people do. They don't live like Buddhist monks. They don't have their own uh, monasteries or their own cloisters, their own lifestyles. They are still living in broadly the same way everybody else is living. Well, what separates the monks who live in the monastery from academic moral philosophers is that the monks participate in regular ritualistic activities together as a community, right? There's a community of practitioners there who are engaged in the performance of rites. And so that causes their philosophical reasoning to not just be a a contemplative entertainment activity of a way of kind of amusing their own minds or producing work, which shows how smart they are, but moves it into something which allows them to more directly access. And so for someone like Iamblichus, the people who have those uh, theurgical lifestyles, who've committed themselves to a regular practice of theurgy together in a a spiritual community, have better and stronger access to the intelligibles and the good than the kind of lone philosopher who contemplates and perhaps writes and perhaps dialogues with a few other people, but who isn't performing uh, any 
rights. If you're not performing these rights, then for Iamblichus, you're not going to really get in touch with uh, your soul is, is still caught up in the sensory. So if you're still in the sensory, not doing anything special, not doing anything different to connect with the good, uh, then all of that contemplation doesn't ultimately transform. Now, of course, you look at you know, someone like Plotinus, and Plotinus did live rather differently from a lot of other people. Plotinus uh, had a very meditative lifestyle, a very meditative practice. And the kind of lone philosopher who meditates alone is a different model for connecting than uh, what you get here with Iamblichus, because theurgy necessarily requires high priests to arrange rituals for others. And so it in inherently involves some kind of church community. So when Julian takes it up, it's to structure and build a church because this itself calls for some set of high priests who organize rituals that other people then come and participate in. And indeed, a lot of the, the mysteries that occurred in paganism around this time worked very much this way. A set of high priests go and they, they do this mystery ceremony and uh, pilgrims come to the site to participate in the mystery. And they have this sensory experience where they gain these insights into aspects of the divine or aspects of the good. This is something which did occur. There were different mystery cults in late uh, late antiquity that performed these you know, mysteries that are uh, similar to what Iamblichus is describing. What Iamblichus is doing is he is connecting those ritualistic ceremonies to Platonism and positioning them within the Platonist framework. So a lot of that stuff was already going on, had already been going on for a long time. It's not like that stuff was new or derived from Iamblichus. What is distinctive about Iamblichus is now all of those other aspects of paganism, which were often pushed out of paganism by people like Plotinus, who wanted uh, uh, a more philosophical relationship without these physical aspects, which for someone like Plotinus are, are more of a distraction. Here, there, the view is that these are actually where all the action is. And if you don't get to the rights, then you're missing out on the most important part. And, of course, some of those rights also involved uh, the taking of hallucinogenic drugs, which, again, is something which changes the sensory. And therefore, for someone like Iamblichus, uh, that is potentially very important. Anything which changes the sensory or, cha or increases receptivity to the spiritual message is potentially useful in rites. Yeah, you could maybe even on that point say that it's like a, a sense, a bit like imagination in the soul. How you were saying when we want to do intellectual stuff, we end up mixing it with the sensible and how maybe people who take psychedelics and uh, they experience feelings like dying or this, this not self, or it's not really an insight into that because if the drug ends, they're not going to start living like maybe a Buddhist monk. But it is like a, a sensible encounter of it, like a sense of it, a direct perception. So then I wonder, like, in, in politics, that could be more useful, but maybe it's less true. To have rituals where people can, there's a technology that gets people on board, and it works for the ritual, but once they go home, not really changed. Well, maybe well, they are. I don't know. Maybe they... So, so this is where we really get into some of the fundamental premises here. Because, of course, Neoplatonism kind of splits. Right? Neoplatonism, as we understand it, there is no one Neoplatonist school. There is no specific school devoted to Neoplatonism, certainly not in this period. And there are lots of different gatherings of different Neoplatonists who go in different directions subsequently to Iamblichus. 
But we do kind of notice two threads emerging in Neoplatonism, one which takes up a lot of what Iamblichus is saying, and another which is more loyal to Plotinus, right? So the, you can imagine a few different positions here. So the position that would be closer to Plotinus is that these rituals are uh, ultimately much too taken up with being and with the physical and uh, are potentially even misleading, are certainly inferior to philosophical practice, right? Uh, you can imagine, of course, the, the Iamblichus position, which is that this is where the action is because the philosophy itself is not enough. And if the philosophy itself is not enough, then you've got to do the rites. The rites are better than philosophy alone, right? Uh, and then you could imagine a middle position, which might regard, say, the rites as something that a person who is not able to do philosophy uh, and to get there straightforwardly through philosophy might need, but someone who is more philosophically inclined uh, or capable might be able to work straightforwardly through philosophy. Now, to take that middle position, though, you have to cut people into two categories, the philosophical people and the not. Now, I think that's what Plato himself does. I think Plato cuts it into two groups. And of course, the philosopher kings in the Republic, they are allowed to lie. They can tell the noble lies and they can perform uh, all sorts of different kinds of rituals to guide the population. They can make up any kind of religion they want to guide the population toward the good. I think that's probably Plato's own position. The issue with that position is that it breaks people into different types, higher and lower types of people, and suggests that some people are not capable of philosophy and therefore must be ruled over by those who are. Plotinus's position avoids that by suggesting that everybody has a part of the soul that is undescended. So everybody has some latent potential for philosophy. And if you just arrange the political system in such a way, you might be able to unlock that potential for larger and larger numbers of people. All right. Iamblichus goes the opposite direction and says everybody's equal and that nobody can access the realm of the intelligibles directly except through theurgy. So both Iamblichus and Plotinus position, I think, us all as broadly having the same level of ability. But Plotinus thinks that we are more capable than Iamblichus thinks we are. Iamblichus is more pessimistic about what we can do. And I think Plato sits in between and that Plato thinks that some people can do this, but not other people. Some people can do philosophy. Other people need to be led around with all sorts of other games and tricks, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, there's quite a lot of, of room there. Uh, you know, I, Plotinus in some ways reminds me of Gandhi. Gandhi thought that everybody had a little bit of an instinct for the good and that therefore if you performed satyagraha, nonviolent civil resistance, and you showed people the force of the truth, uh, everybody has some ability to see it when it's shown to them. And if everyone has some ability to see it when it's shown to them, then you can change the world just by showing people the truth. Now, that's a very optimistic idea about what people are capable of that suggests people can do a whole lot. It's very demanding. But Gandhi suggests everyone is capable of doing it. So Gandhi thinks everyone operates at this same relatively high level, morally and spiritually, that even very ordinary people are able to get there. Similar in that respect to Plotinus, who has a very demanding notion of what we should be doing, but does think that everybody has a part of the soul that is open to this. Iamblichus has got us all on the same level, but at the cost of very much diminishing what we're capable of. Uh, Plato makes room for both, but he makes room for both by dividing us into different types of people. So I think there are some issues with all of those perspectives. 
I think a lot of people would like Plotinus's view to be true. And in defense of Plotinus's view, I think we can say we have never had a society arranged even remotely close to if it were possible for everyone to do philosophy and to, and to get some, something out of it. We've never seen a society that looks anything like that, that enables large numbers of people to do that. It's always been something only a small number of people can do because most people are slaves or serfs or wage slaves or workers or what have you. Uh, at the, the same time, you know, we've never seen it, so it's never been done. What were you going to ask? There's huge numbers of people with leisure time in universities today. Not entertainment, but leisure, mm. as in the time to... So what separates that from the, the ancient academy? The rigorousness of it or well, the intention? I think, for one, the, the intention of students in universities is very different. Most students are coming to universities so that they can get a job. Yeah. Uh, be, the philosophers in, in antiquity are landed aristocrats, mostly, who don't have to worry about their incomes because they have it coming from rents from land. So uh, the whole approach is much more survival-oriented. Now, the ordinary person who comes to the modern university has got to focus on how am I going to survive in my adult life and is under the gun from their parents to find a way to survive uh, and to prove that whatever it is that they're learning uh, at university is useful for the purposes of getting a job which produces an income. So this means that everything that the contemporary student is doing has to be measured instrumentally in terms of does it produce an income and that inherently orients the study away from the object of uh, platonist inquiry since uh, the you know money or status which is what most people are going to university to obtain is specifically not what the guardians are meant to be pursuing not what the philosophers are meant to be pursuing at all and indeed the the argument is that People who can pursue those things and put those things ahead of the good are not even of the same type of soul, you know, a different kind of soul. Or a different balance, or maybe, I, I don't know, we, it's another debate. I, mm. I also wanted to say that this sounds a bit like the theurgic institution. You kind of sideline maybe the correct motivation and you go a bit more for achieving some kind of mystical experience or the crowd being pleased. Although you don't want to be a crowd pleaser because then you're not a, a fair seer, but it does seem more like that than, say, a Well, platonic. I think that the theurgical emphasis is on getting the crowd where it needs to be spiritually. So I do think it is interested in the good. It's not just interested in being popular or you know, raising revenue. Of course, for the rituals to happen, there have to be resources for them, and they have to be done in a sensorily enticing way. But part of why you're doing it in this enticing way, it's not just to make the rituals popular so that people want to come. It's because part of what people like about the rituals, part of what makes the rituals popular is that it gives this opening up to this, this, it increases the receptivity. And so people get these insights and that's exciting to them when they get them. Oh yeah. Yeah. If your heart's yeah. lifted by in a stadium or something, you're going to experience different things and yeah. And of course, there, there is a certain ambition in Iamblichus's claim that we can tell when someone is faking a ritual, when someone is not a real practitioner of theurgy and is instead just putting on a show for us. We can tell. Uh, 
I don't think everybody can tell. I think the existence of people like Kenneth Copeland shows very clearly that you know, some people can't tell. Uh, but it, it's nice that Iamblichus thought that we all could. But he also says that the rituals should only be done, or the, the gods only allow them to be done at the opportune time, at the good time. But, you know, that sounds a lot like, <laughs> you know, when it's convenient, we can do this ritual and we'll say this truth. And when it's not, we won't. Well, if you try like to do a ritual when it's not the right time, then you, you won't get the benefit of the grace, so you won't get the divine insight, right? The ritual invites the God, invites okay. the God's presence, and then the God has to choose to come, and then the God chooses to bestow. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I can't see like why. So, of course, the God's cooperation is always necessary. You can't perform a ritual without a, a, a real ritual that actually works without the gods' cooperation on this view. How do you think it gives them no choice but to come to you, the gods? Well, you, you don't give them no choice. The gods always have the choice. And that's why the ritual is only ever performed when they will it. Because if you are doing all of the things, uh, but the gods don't come and there is no great insight, then you didn't actually perform a ritual. You just did a bunch of stuff. <laughs> True, but then there's a lot of stuff in his writing that points to like when he says uh, why there's foreign names that won't be translated, it just sounds like endless mystification, but it's like uh, they won't be translated because it's, there's majesty to it and it attracts the gods and, and this kind of stuff. Well, even the sound of the word, right? So if we're doing a ritual and I use uh, some name that sounds exotic to you, that might be part of what makes you feel like you're in a spiritual position. And the thing is, the physical matter is part of what emanates ultimately from the one. So anything that has a kind of sensory effect on you, there is a sense in which that really is potentially spiritual. So if I say a name, a foreign name of a god, if I say Balhaman, and you hear me say Balhaman, and you get a little bit, ooh, I might get shivers and tingles yeah. in my... If you get some shivers or tingles, that's part of opening you to whatever it is that is about to happen. And this is why it's so it's immoral almost, it seems, because it's well, but it really is opening with... you it really is opening you to it. And so the fact that sensorily it's possible to open you to it with the sound of the name is itself mm -hmm. indicative that this is part of how it works. Because this is the sense in which the one can be known cataphatically. Everything that is sensory is the works of the one. So the fact that a name gives you the shivers means that it gives you the shivers. The one is giving you the shivers with that name, in a sense. And when you, when you say you burn entrails and they become air, and then that air is like, it's the closest thing to uh, the lightness of, of divinity, or it can mix in, it, I think it descends into the world without being descended. So it's like here, but not embodied, a bit like a god. Does that give no choice as well to the gods, or is that also just, you know, completely dependent on their grace? Well, everything, like is, everything is always dependent on their grace, because you okay. cannot command the gods, you can't make them do anything. Everything is always dependent on their grace. The, the, thing, the thing about this is you can start talking about the cataphatic aspects of this and how the signs in the sensory really do indicate things that happen on this theory in the physical world really do indicate the will of the gods, really do indicate them, Right. Because everything that is in the sensory is their works, so they can be known through what is in the sensory. Uh, and therefore, these signs and symbols really do indicate their will, right? At the same time, there is still this older Platonic emphasis 
on the apophatic characteristics of the one, the fact that the one cannot be totally known, or indeed here really cannot be known at all, and is unspeakable. So through this, you'll get little glimpses into the realm of the intelligibles, but you will not be able to access the, the oneness of, of, of the one outright. So when we start talking about, well, how does this work? At a certain point, we're going to brush up against the apophatic character of it. So it works up to the point at which, of course, it doesn't work. And anything that we say about the one uh, is false. But there are things that we can say about the one that are less false than other things. And that is the sense in which the cataphatic and apophatic aspects here are in tension with each other. If I say that the one is the good, that's the truest thing that I can say, but it's not true because the... You know, to say it's the good is to suggest it's not everything else. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how much ritual is there in society. Maybe it is a bit arrogant to say that, you know, it's all bullshit. Even in divine matters, even in things that are supposedly about the highest truth you can get. You know, if it can lift people that much, or it can, well, you know, I, unify I, I them. Well, I think it really depends on where you sit within, you know, among these Platonists, there's some seriously different positions on this question. You've got people who say that this stuff is actively a misleading thing because it's caught up in the sensory, and the sensory is images, and images are deceit, okay? Then you've got people who say, well, this works for some people for whom philosophy is just not something they can do. This is something which gives some people some level of ability to be directed toward the good by the priests who know what they're doing, right? And then you've got people who say, actually, you've got to have some aspect of this in your life because no person is above being moved by stuff that gives them the shivers, Hmm. Or they can't fully say no. If something doesn't give you the shivers, it's not enough. Hmm. Yeah. You've got to have this moment where you go, ooh, that's unsettling. And if you don't have that moment where you're a little bit unsettled, then you haven't really connected with anything uh, beyond your own uh, thoughts. No, it's like when he says natural foresight is not supernatural, a doctor using pulse to think about illnesses or birds predicting earthquakes or winds. That's very natural. There has to be something. There has to be a spook power. Yes, yeah. there has to be a, a little bit of, of the sublime in it. Sublime. There has to be Aesthetic. something that awakens you to the sublime aesthetically. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm not sure. You, know, you could ask me, you know, what do I think is right? I think that there are interesting arguments for Plotinus's position, for what I take to be Plato's position, and for uh, Iamblichus's position. I think that all three of those positions are interesting. I think that all of them have unsettling aspects to them. Now, if Plotinus is right, then all of the stuff people do in the sensory ritualistically is a bit, bit of a waste of time. And all of these moments where people have these, these uh, you know, what seems to be insights, that's, that's kind of deceitful because they've followed an a overly, overly earthy way of, of doing that. Um, but, you know, if you follow Plotinus, then everybody has the potential to do philosophy, and there's something wonderful about that. You know, we just have to arrange society in such a way that everyone can do it. You take uh, Plato's path, and there's a role for philosophy that is, you know, legitimate. You can access it through philosophy. There's a role for this other stuff that is uh, legitimate. Uh, but if you're going to take that position, then you have different types of people, potentially, or hierarchies of people that are you know, immutable and Nobody really wants to think that some people are fundamentally capable of, of things that other people aren't uh, you know, in, in this kind of sense, in the sense of being able to know what's good and what's bad. You know, it's not, not a very appetizing thing to, to swallow. And then you've got 
Iamblichus's position, which endows all of these everyday moments uh, uh, with great, great meaning. Uh, there is I- enormous meaning in the whole physical world if you uh, take this kind of position. Although, uh, but it diminishes the position of philosophy uh, as a result. So it's, it's very difficult to say that one of these is straight out the best, but I think it's interesting to introduce uh, listeners to all of these different views. What were you going to say? <laughs> Not much. I think you basically said it before, but in a ritual, if, uh, and, and you put the significance in the object, in the matter, as you're saying, in the world, the philosopher would be able to tell that Iamblichus says, it's not actually in the object, it's in my intention, whereas the, the, the other devotees might not. So it's, it's still your intention. It's not in matter, so to speak. Yeah. I think, in and the there are aspects of this in, in regular Christianity. At some point, we might do you know, Dionysius the Arapagite, and we might, we might talk some more about some of that. But if you think about the whole, uh, you know, the communion wafer, uh, you know, and the wine and the, the blood and the body of Christ, uh, there's a sense in which that is really meant to be what is happening. And you are supposed to get the shivers when you do that. And if you haven't taken it that seriously to the point where you get the shivers, you ha- aren't really doing it right. You have to approach the wafer like it is the body and you have to approach the wine like it is. And then it is in a sense. Yeah. Because it has that effect of opening you up. So the, the blood and the, you know, the, the wine and the, the bread become what it makes you feel if you approach it in that way. If you treat it as just a bread, you know, a wafer, and you treat it as just a glass of wine, then it doesn't have the same effect. Do you think we've become wiser as a culture by calling these things placebos, or do you think we've kind of lost our soul? Well, I think you know, if, we, if we were committed in some way to the kind of philosophy of Plato or Plotinus, if we were you know, engaged in some kind of discussion of what's good and we went, well, we don't need these other things to mediate it because we're going to think about the good straight up. And we can, you know, that would, I think, speak to Plotinus's position. If, if our uh, development, if the development of industrial society unlocked the potential for everybody to do philosophy, that would speak to Plotinus's position. What I think we're instead seeing is that a lot of people, if there isn't ritual, if they don't believe in ritual, then they also drop belief in the good itself. And so for a lot of people, if the good cannot be rendered in some way physical through ritual, it doesn't seem real to them. And so we end up with a a society that doesn't really think that there is any such thing as the good and therefore has a politics which is about handling uh, disagreement among uh, you know, people with with uh, different desires, and is focused really on on uh, on getting people what they want in utilitarian terms, and uh, maintaining people's autonomy in a Kantian sense, or protecting people's freedom, uh, understood in a kind of Kantian or or German idealist sense. You know, that's the direction we've kind of gone in, as we have, uh, I think, moved away from the concept of the good as the unifying concept that we make appeals to when we talk about why we think things should or shouldn't happen one way or another. Well, even if the good's defined in individual terms, we've lost the good. Well, we've lost the good in this sense, because in this sense, the good is something that the individual answers to. Uh, Indeed, to think of yourself as an individual, that that needs to be justified. You know, if you think about the good as 
Uh, if you derive what you believe from the good, then you can only believe what it's good for you to believe. And so you can only think of yourself as an individual and think of uh, your specific desires or your sp- you know, as good insofar as you, you, know, you take those things to be good and you have to defend the particular things that you desire or want or prefer with reference to what's good. Uh, and now we have it going the other way where any notion of good that we have comes out of what individuals want. So uh, to say that something is good, you have to prove that there are individuals who want it. You have to you know, show your micro foundations and show how what you're arguing for comes out of real individuals and what they happen to want or desire. Right. For Plato, there's a huge difference between what people want, what people desire and what's good. And just because you want something doesn't make it good. You have to do this further step of, of showing how what you want or what you desire aligns with the good. And if what you desire doesn't align with the good, then that you've got a problem there. Uh, you, you want something that you shouldn't want, and you have to build your, up your virtue so that you can align what you want with the good, right? It's a very different kind of way of thinking about how people should behave. And I think that yeah, there's a point here that if you don't have ritual, a lot of people don't do philosophy. If they do philosophy, it's not to figure out what's good. It's uh, you know, it, often a kind of deconstructive exercise about taking apart concepts, showing that those concepts are reified because they aren't derived from particular individuals and what they happen to want. And a lot of contemporary philosophy has become this. It's become uh, taking apart abstract concepts, uh, saying, look, this abstract concept cannot be empirically grounded on what specific individuals want. I have no way of rendering it concrete, uh, of proving that this principle corresponds. You know, people will say things like, well, the state is, is just made up because you can't identify the state with any particular person or group of people. Uh, so therefore, the state is a, is a deceitful abstraction. And the same goes for God. The same goes for all sorts of, of these different abstractions that people like to use. If you can't render it concrete, uh, the impulse now is to just chuck it out. And I think uh, that's in part because we view these kinds of rights as illegitimate. And then we uh, are not practicing a philosophy which is about thinking about the good. We, are, uh, we have a different kind of purpose in our philosophical contemplation. Yeah, and uh, one final thing. I think it's nice that you mm, you need the ritual because your motivations, even for the purest things, are not pure. You know, so even if you might want to be learning about divinity and philosophy, there's also parts of you at the very same time that do it for slightly less pure reasons, and that maybe the ritual caters to that. Yeah, yeah, and maybe it kind of shocks you a little bit. It kind of. Uh pushes you back in your chair and reminds you of the of the smallness of whatever it is that you think that you want relative to what is actually good yeah yeah the big picture yeah so with without taking any specific stance among the different views that have been thrown out i think um, hopefully this this episode is interesting for for those who want to think about platonism and different ways of taking it because there are many different ways of taking it uh And uh, yeah, but we've probably run out of time for today. We're probably doing, I think, Thomas Aquinas next. We're going to do a straight Thomas Aquinas episode next time. No no mixing in with anybody else, just straight Aquinas. Is that what we agreed on? Yeah, maybe or maybe one work because it's a bit unfair. We do that. I don't mention half of his 
work and then that's it that's all Thomas Aquinas has on political theory 101 so maybe yeah maybe we'll do something more focused than just Aquinas in general maybe we'll do some specific part uh, yeah we'll talk about that after we get off the air in the meantime thank you guys for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day bye bye thank you thank you